You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. And we're back for episode two out of our tax series, where we're going to be breaking down the various forms you as a real estate investor are going to need to be aware of if you're going to be paying taxes or have a tax liability to the IRS or other uh, authorities. So uh, <laughs> if you're going to be paying taxes, <laughs> yeah, let me, let me put it this way. You're probably going to file. <laughs> you will be paying taxes. You will probably have to file. So uh, go back, put an asterisk on what I just said there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're going to be going through Form 1040 and related schedules. We're going through partnership tax returns a bit. And uh, as corporations, we'll probably touch on some more. So having said that, we're going to dive into all of that in one minute after a quick word from Landlord Studio. Having a good rental management software is essential for landlords who want to stay on top of their finances, save time, and reduce stress during tax time. Without one, you're reliant on outdated and error-prone processes like spreadsheets, paper receipts, and manual reconciliation. Who wants to do that? This can lead to compliance issues, overpaid taxes, expensive vacancy periods, or worse. Master your income and expense tracking with Landlord Studio today. Import transactions to quickly reconcile expenses, automate rent collection and income tracking, digitize receipts on the go, and instantly generate financial reports, including Schedule E, to make tax filing a breeze. Landlord Studio is much more than just a rental accounting solution, though. Take advantage of their range of property management tools, from finding and screening tenants to managing leases and even tracking and managing property maintenance tasks. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com. CPA. Use the coupon code Real Estate CPA at checkout for 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com slash CPA and use coupon code Real Estate CPA to get 25% off your plan and a 14-day free trial today. All right. So let's start with the first form, the form everybody should be familiar with, unless you've been avoiding taxes your entire life, and that's form 1040, the individual tax return. Yeah, form form ten forty. Where do you want to start with this? I mean, form ten forty is expansive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Maybe two pages now. It used to be one. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Maybe we just go off of you know the ones that are most relevant to real estate investors. And I think yeah, maybe we just start with form ten forty is the individual tax return, right? Your partnership tax returns form ten sixty five. Your S corporation tax return is eleven twenty S eleven one one two zero dash S. And then if you have a C corporation, it's just one one two zero form eleven twenty. So. Your Form 1040, everybody should be familiar with it. If you don't have real estate, if you don't have a business, if you're not investing in stocks, it should be a pretty simple, straightforward form. You're going to report your income, any itemized deductions, standard deductions that you have, then it's going to calculate your total tax. And then you're going to report how much tax you paid in via W-2 withholdings or estimated taxes. And then it's going to basically say your total tax minus your payments equals either the amount that you owe or the refund that, that you should be getting. Now, to support the numbers on Form 1040, we have a whole bunch of supplemental forms. One of those forms is Schedule C. So that's if you're running a trader business. Well, like we run this CPA firm. If we weren't running it through a partnership, uh, we would report it on Schedule C, even if it was a single member LLC. So yeah. single member LLCs are still reported on Schedule C of your Form 1040. Uh, so you're going to report all sole proprietorship activities that are self-employment activities. Then you have Schedule E which is for passive activities or or I should say rental activities. So you're going to report rental real estate, royalty income, 
on Schedule E. And on Schedule E, that's where you're also going to make that real estate professional status election. It's you know, it's it's more of like a, a check mark <laughs> in the software, and it you know makes it flow to a specific box on Schedule E. But so Schedule E, you're going to report all your rentals that are not held in partnership LLCs or in S-Corps or C-Corps. So even if you have a single member LLC that's owning the rental real estate, you're still going to report it on Schedule E. And just to clarify, single member LLCs, the default tax status is partnership tax status, but don't get that confused with an actual partnership. So single member LLC, if you 100% own it, you're still going to report it on Schedule E. You're not going to go and report it on a Form 1065 where you would an actual partnership. But yeah, you report all your rents, all your expenses, depreciation on Schedule E. And then there's Form 8582. Now, Form 8582, in my opinion, is one of the most important forms that real estate investors need to know. That form is going to report the aggregate of all of your passive income and passive losses from all of your passive activities. So it's important to look at that form annually. Again, it's Form 8582. It's really important to look at that form annually and just understand how much suspended passive loss you are carrying forward. Suspended passive losses that you're carrying forward can be beneficial in years that I'm going to liquidate real estate, right? So maybe instead of doing a 1031 exchange, I have enough suspended passive losses to just sell the property outright, and I release the suspended passive losses in the year of sale. So Form 8582 will help give you that information that you can use every single year that you are investing in rental real estate. Additionally, Form 8582 is really important to track on an annual basis. So I even recommend just creating a little spreadsheet and just label it Form 8582 and put that suspended passive loss that you're carrying forward every single year, label the year, put the loss number. Because sometimes what we've seen when people switch CPA firms is the new CPA firm forgets to look at Form 8582 and carry forward the suspended loss. So all of a sudden, like 2021, they had a loss of $100,000. And then on the 2022 tax return, the loss is zero. The suspended loss that was carried forward is zero. Now, what happened? Well, it turns out the taxpayer switched CPA firms and the new CPA firm just forgot to carry that forward. It happens. And it happens to the best firms because you get into peak tax season and everybody's just trying to grind and get the returns out the door. Mistakes are made. And so it's really important for you to know what to look for so that you can make sure that you catch these potential mistakes and get them corrected. Because we have seen it where people are, you know, multi years into their tax filings and they, you know, you do like a retroactive look back and you see those suspended losses that never got carried forward simply because we switched CPA firms and the new firm forgot to look at that carry forward loss. Same statement on Schedule D, by the way, if you're carrying forward a large capital loss from stock sales or anything like that. Make sure that gets carried forward as well. Anytime that you switch firms, you got to double check this stuff. Form 8582, Schedule D, because the firm has to go in manually, typically manually, unless your prior firm's nice enough to release the file, like the actual software file. But your new firm has to manually go key in all those losses that are carrying forward. And sometimes they forget. Sometimes they fat finger numbers. Sometimes they make mistakes. So you have to be very aware of that in years that you switch firms. Typically, once you're with that same firm, it's fine because they just do a big rollover every single year. They roll the 
past file into the new file and all the suspended losses move into the new file. So it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's less of a lift on you from a quality check perspective when you are with the same firm. And that's one benefit of being with the same firm for a long time is that you just get to benefit from that rollover and it makes things on you easier. You have a little less worry on those mistakes. But if you're switching firms, you got to check those two forms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, something that I just wanted to make sure we touch on here is uh, there's some confusion on when rental properties <laughs> are reported on Schedule C and not Schedule E. I figure we might want to just address that here to clear up any of that confusion. So typically, uh, rental properties are not going to be reported on Schedule C, even when they're short-term rentals, unless, okay, unless you are providing substantial services to your guests. And again, for anybody who does not know what substantial services are, substantial services are services that you'd find in a hotel, things like daily cleaning while the guest is in the unit, daily meals while the guest is there, ride vouchers providing cars for them to drive around and while they're there, concierge services, anything you would find in a hotel that goes above and beyond simply renting out the space for them to use uh, may be considered substantial. So that's the time when we reported on Schedule C or when you're a dealer of real estate. And there's a whole bunch of things that go into determining whether or not you're a dealer or not. But typically, if you're fixing and flipping properties or you're developing properties, you will be considered a dealer of real estate in many cases. And um, you're going to have to report that on Schedule C. All right. So those are the times you're reporting Schedule C. If you're merely renting out the property for seven days or less and not providing substantial services, it's still going to go on Schedule E. We have all this stuff detailed out in the TaxSmart Insiders group. Uh, if you want to check that out, head on over to TaxSmart Investors and uh, sign up for a subscription. Go ahead and um, a free trial and go ahead and, and check out those articles where we have all that detailed out with citations and all the beautiful stuff that you and all the tax professionals out there like to see. So go ahead and uh, check that out. I want to move right along to the partnership tax return. The partnership tax return, that's form 1065. And usually you're going to file a partnership tax return when you have a business that you're operating with multiple people. So if you have an LLC with multiple members, that's going to be considered a multi-member LLC. And that's going to be traditionally taxed as a partnership unless you elect to have it taxed as an S-corporation or C corporation, which typically you do not want to do with rental real estate, all right? You do not want to use S corporations or C corporations for rental real estate in many cases. So partnerships, multi-member LLCs, uh, multiple members, that's when you have a partnership typically. And rentals, okay, your rental activity is going to be reported on Form 8825. It's kind of like the Schedule E of the partnership tax return. And when you're doing a partnership tax return, there's some additional uh, things you'll need to be aware of. Like you need to have a balance sheet in some cases. So you want to make sure that your, your bookkeeping and your financial reporting is up to date and accurate and is complete. So when you hand that off to your CPA or to your tax preparer, they can file that for you and meet all those requirements and all, all that good stuff. Now, so the partnership, all right, does not pay taxes. What the partnership does is it passes through income, deductions, credits, and all that good stuff to each individual partner via Form K-1, all right? So you receive this nice, beautiful K-1 statement from the partnership, and you report that on Schedule E, page two of your Form 1040, and that's where all of that, all of your income, expenses, et cetera, deductions, all that good stuff is reported on your 1040, all right? Moving right along to S-Corporation. So S-Corporation is another commonly used business entity for people within the real estate industry. 
And uh, again, just want to repeat that typically you do not want to use an S corporation for rental properties. You either want to have it as a sole proprietorship or an LLC that's disregarded for tax purposes. So it flows directly to your 1040. Or if you have multiple members, you're going to want to use that partnership for rental real estate. Now for the S corporation. So when, you know, when does it make sense to use an S corporation? Well, it could make sense to use an S corporation when you are fixing and flipping properties or your property manager or consultant. Basically, when you have an active business and it's not rental properties, an S corporation may make sense. And the reason why S corporations tend to be used are to help you mitigate the exposure to the self-employment tax, right? So the way that works is basically on a partnership, what ends up happening is you pay taxes uh, on the profits of the partnership that are allocated to you. In addition to paying taxes on those profits, you're going to pay self-employment taxes up to a certain threshold. The self-employment tax is 15.3% and is typically taxed on uh, up to 142,000 uh, of income. I think that's the rate for this year. And again, it increases for inflation. But with an S corporation, you can pay yourself a salary. It has to be a reasonable salary. It can't just be something you pull out of a hat. All right. So you want to work with a tax professional to determine what that means for you. And you only pay the self-employment tax on that salary, right? You don't pay the self-employment tax on the whole entire profits, which is why corporations tend to be used in the first place. Give you a quick example of what that may look like. All right. Let's just say you, you generate $100,000 in net income. Fantastic. Right. Well, guess what? You get, if you don't use an S corporation, you get the benefit or you get, you get the play, you get the honor of paying the IRS 15.3% or $15,200 in self-employment taxes on top of your federal tax rate, state taxes and all that good stuff. But let's just say you're able to justify a reasonable salary of $40,000 for the sake of this example. I'm using nice and round numbers. All right. Well, now you only pay 15.3% tax on that $40,000. And we're looking at here, that's going to be roughly $6,000, give or take, which means you're saving. Yeah, I'm just ballparking these numbers here for the sake of an example. You're saving roughly $9,000 in taxes. It's fantastic, right? Well, that's why people use S corporations. Now, with an S corporation, much like a partnership, you end up receiving a form K1, right? Because the S corporation does not pay taxes. It, just like a partnership, passes through the income uh, deductions, credits, and all that good stuff down to each individual partner on that form K1, which is again reported on your Schedule E, page two of your tax return, where each individual stakeholder or shareholder rather uh, pays taxes. If you are receiving a bunch of K1s and you're looking for a you're looking for the place to go to in your tax returns to understand what all like if all the K1s were entered appropriately the first place that you look is schedule E page 2. So schedule E page 1 is going to show all of your rentals and there might be several schedule E page 1s by the way. So if you have like 10 rentals there's going to be multiple copies of Schedule E page one. I know that sounds weird, but page one is always used to report your rentals and it holds how many rentals? I think four. Four or five. Four rentals? Let's might see. Be five. Might be five. I think it goes A, B, C. I'm actually going to pull this up real quick. Oh, it's three rentals. Three rentals. Three. Oh, wow. Yeah, three. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you have, let's say that you have nine rental properties, you will see three Schedule E page ones. Okay, so you see, so you're gonna have Schedule E, and then you're gonna scroll down. You're gonna see it again, and you're gonna scroll down. You're gonna see it again. All right, and it's got the three columns A, B, C with all your rentals. So you're gonna have three of those pages if you have nine rentals, right? Three per page. Then below that, you'll see Schedule E page two. So Schedule E page two comes after 
all of your Schedule E page ones that include all of your rentals. Schedule E page two is going to show you all of your passive activities from partnerships and corporations. That's in part two. And it's going to consolidate it on, I believe it's line 32. Um, so, and you can see that on your Schedule E. Yes, it is. I've, I've got it pulled up right here. Uh, so, part two, Schedule E page two shows you all of your K1s, essentially. Now, if you have if you have many K1s, then what it's going to say is it's just going to say C statement X, you know, C statement one, C statement 25, whatever statement it is in your returns. And then what you have to do is you have to scroll down your tax returns until you find the the section where they list all the statements. And, and most softwares are different, but most of the time, the statements are going to be at the end of the federal return package. So all the way to the end before the state return, you'll find the statements section and it'll be all the supporting statements, all the supporting calculations, everything. So you just find statement, say 25. That's that's what Schedule E page two says to look for. And on statement 25, you will see every single one of your passive activities listed and you can you can spot check it from there. So you want to pull the K1s up, you want to make sure they were all entered correctly. Absolutely. Any other forms we want to touch on here before we wrap this one up for um, no, but I do just want to say that, you know, I, I think that the general understanding is that entering K1s is really easy. So if I have 10 K1s, my return should not be that expensive if, if all I have aside from that is a form W2. And um and I would just I'm just going to put this out there uh, so just just from what we are seeing so that everybody can understand going into next year. Taxes have gotten increasingly complex since the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, those K-1s, while they like were probably easy to enter years ago, uh, they're no longer easy to enter. And we're seeing return prices go sky high with with when you have a lot of K-1s. Because there's a lot of supplemental information that we have to key in. Think about the 199A deduction, business interest limitations. And there's also state issues too. That And there's a lot of states that conform and don't conform and conform in different ways to various provisions of the federal tax code, such as bonus depreciation and things like that. So all of a sudden, these K-1s, well, not all of a sudden, but over the years, the entering K-1s and understanding the law around K-1s, not only from a federal perspective, but also from a state perspective, has gotten more and more complex. So if you have, you know, 50 K-1s, expect a very pricey tax return. Yeah, um, It's not as easy as it used to be. And you need to factor that into your investment decisions as right. well. Right. When, yeah, you're, so when you're placing capital into syndications and into funds and, and private investments and things, you need to understand what that K-1 is going to look like. Because one K-1... One K one in a in a fund that invests in fifty different states. That one K one could cost you thousands of dollars in compliance fees with your firm. That's what we're seeing on our end, uh, and also with the other firms that we have relationships with that service real estate investors across the United States. So be very cognizant of that because it's an underlying factor that could blow up your return on investment. Yeah, no, absolutely, you know, and I uh I I invested in a in a in a fund recently, I think last year and I got 
is the first fund I invested in versus more like single single asset syndications. And I think I had 32 state K-1s like, you know, supporting because it invested across multiple states. Right now, it just becomes increasingly complex. And I know limited partnerships, you know, it sounds all sexy. It's nice. And pa- it is passive because you don't have to make any management decisions. However, like Brendan said, you do have to factor in all the compliance costs that will rack up if you're just willy-nilly. My personal two cents on this, if you could, try to pick a few states you really like, find some sponsors that operate in those states, and go and invest in those states, okay? So then you're keeping your compliance costs low because otherwise you might come up, you might you know blow up with 32 K-1s, you know what I mean? And uh, Can I ask you, what, what did that do to your, so you had that one K-1, but like 30 different states. What did that do to your tax return price? Yeah, so it definitely increased it. Um, and and I this is the first year, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts, that I did not actually file my tax return. I've always done it myself. Um, and when I've done it myself in the past... And to I also be a, clear, our firm did not file it for you. Yeah, right, right. I had to pay it. I paid a third we, party. We like to get the... Uh, and I know that probably sounds weird for people, but we actually like to get other opinions right. on our own returns too. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. So what ended up happening was we didn't file in all 32 states. Because I ended up having losses in many of those states, and not all of them needed to file the K ones to you know maintain those losses. But uh, I still had to file in. I forgot how many states I had to file, and I had to file in like ten states or something like that. And it, it's just like all this stuff, and then you have a tax return. You have to review this bigger tax return. It just becomes yeah. a compliance. It becomes a compliance nightmare, and what becomes a passive investment, you know, easily becomes you know you make up for all that passivity by having to review and having to deal with all these compliance headaches. Now, one more thing I want to throw in there while we're on this topic. Look, so what I did was a few years ago. Now, this is, I think, before I may have even worked at this firm, I had invested with a partner. So we partnered up, we created an LLC, and we put money into the partnership and invested in a syndicate, right, to make the minimum investment. So we go ahead and put that money in. And then every single year had to file a partnership tax return on top of that. Now, I, being the CPA, I said, hey, look, I'll, I'll file that tax return every year. And what was supposed to be a simple passive investment turned into you know a few hours of work every single year around the deadline to do that. Or if I would have you know outsourced it, had someone else file it, would have turned into like you know a thousand plus dollar tax return you know, on a year over year basis just for a nice simple passive investment. So my two cents is if you're going to be making investments in limited partnerships, a like we discussed before, just be aware of the state compliance issues um, that you're going to have to face or your CPA that you're going to have to pay is going to face. And B, don't, uh, I mean, unless you're talking about substantial dollars, and I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, don't create a partnership just to go and invest in the syndicate because you're creating another layer of compliance, another layer of cost that is going to factor into your returns. Now, like so I said, if you have if you're investing several hundreds of thousands of dollars as a partnership, it may be all right because your compliance cost is going to be a fraction of your returns. Uh, the smaller the amount you invest, the smaller your returns, generally speaking, and the, the higher percentage that compliance cost is going to have of your overall returns, and it's going to nerf it's going to nerf your benefits. So that's it. I'm getting off my K1 soapbox. Uh, the bottom line is just be aware there are state compliance issues. When you're investing in as a limited partner, just be aware of them and be aware there's usually going to be a cost associated with it if you're going to have a third party do it, which you should when you're operating that level for sure. Yeah. You know, going back to your K1 story, it probably raised your cost by a few hundred bucks, probably if not by 500, 750 or a thousand bucks. But you also mentioned something else. I mean, so that's one K1, a lot of different states. But you also mentioned something else that I want to touch on. Reviewing all of those state returns cost you time. 
Right. Like it's going to cost you a weekend. If you don't know, I mean, look, like, like we, we specialize in tax, right? But even me reviewing all these state returns, it's insane. And, and you have to sit there and refresh on all the state rules and you have to pull up the regulations per state and really understand if everything's flowing correctly. It takes a weekend, right? I mean, it's not, you can't just passively sign off on these returns and think that they're good to go. You have to actually review them. And every single state return that, gets added to your plates at least one and a half to two hours to review effectively for somebody that doesn't know that state's tax law very well. You know, I can review North Carolina's state return in 30 minutes, but Arizona's takes me a while. And this is coming from a guy that understands tax in general. So keep that in mind too. Every additional state that you invest in is an additional two hours that you're gonna have to sit down and review whenever you get that tax return back and that's just zaps a weekend so you've got actual monetary costs and you've got costs in your time and the last thing that i'll say on all these k1s if you are investing in different states right so tom said pick a state find some sponsors i love that advice i will add the caveat that you have to understand how the state treats bonus depreciation there are a handful of states such as north carolina i believe new york uh minnesota that will add back bonus depreciation for state tax purposes. And even if you have a passive loss at the federal level, suspended passive loss at the federal level, it's still going to be treated as income at the state level. You have to be very careful about this. So North Carolina, for example, let's say that your AGI is $200,000. Your federal AGI is $200,000. That's where North Carolina starts. So North Carolina would say your starting income point is 200K. But North Carolina also says, because your federal AGI of 200K included a deduction for bonus depreciation, you have to add back the bonus depreciation that you claimed. So now your starting point was 200K, but now you're adding back 50K of bonus depreciation for North Carolina state purposes, right? You have to add back 85% of that bonus depreciation that you claimed at the federal level. But what's interesting about North Carolina and some of these other states as well is even if you didn't claim the bonus depreciation at the federal level, what I mean by that is if your AGI was 200K at the federal level and you had bonus depreciation on your rentals, but your rentals were all passive. So the losses created from your rentals were all suspended. So that 200K AGI doesn't actually include the bonus depreciation deduction because the losses created from bonus depreciation were suspended on form 8582 and they were carried forward to next year. So that 200K federal AGI doesn't actually include the bonus depreciation deduction. North Carolina does not care. They still take the 200K as the starting point, and then you have to add back 85% of the bonus depreciation that you've claimed. And this can be painful for people that have not planned for this. So be very aware of the states that you're investing in and how they treat bonus depreciation. If you don't know, Ask your accountants, pay for a $300 consultation and get an answer so that you can understand what the tax implications are going to be. That's something that we're trying to do a lot better of this year, educating our clients on because it shocks too many people. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And you know, if you're listening to this right now and you ask why is it so complicated, you know, could it be simpler? Well, it could probably be simpler, but uh, it just keeps getting more and more and more complicated. And it doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And look, I'd gladly go into another profession or go into another area of accounting practice if they would simplify the task code. But uh, it just doesn't look like it's ever going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. So 
it is what it is. Uh, just understand there's a cost to um, entity structuring. So if you're going to be doing one last, this is the last thing I'll say. I think we can wrap this up. Uh, if you're going to be doing entity structuring, right, you're going to be working with attorneys on that. Just be mindful that the more partnerships you create, the more trusts you create in some cases, especially if they're going to be irrevocable trusts, the more S corporations, just the more layers of entities that you stack on top of it, that usually comes with a tax compliance cost associated with it. And you're going to be paying a lot of money in tax returns. I mean, we see it all the time, people filing partnership returns that are you know otherwise unnecessary just to, you know, because they have this elaborate entity structure, which is arguably unnecessary too. So just keep that in mind. There's costs associated with that. And that being said, I think we're going to wrap up today's episode. Next week, we will be going over tax services just so you have a nice overview of what is available to you and what is included and what's not included in the various types of tax services that are available to you out there. Uh, so having said that, uh, we'll catch you on next week's episode of Tax Smart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.